And all I got was this lousy T-shirt. They've been around for decades. Maybe you've owned one or two in your time. Whether it's for a trip to Florida or worn after a graduation or turning a certain age, there is a lousy T-shirt for just about everything. The Dutch government recently breathed new life into this old style. I found this interesting. Uh, Amsterdam, or rather the Netherlands National Cybersecurity Center, invited hackers to try to find vulnerabilities in their websites or online governmental systems. Anyone who successfully reports a vulnerability is rewarded with a black shirt which reads, I hacked the Dutch government and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. I found that if you, depending on the type of vulnerability and how significant it was, they might throw a gift card in there too, but pretty fun. Of course, now you can just buy that shirt too, naturally, because of the internet. So maybe we should buy one and people will think we're awesome hackers, but... After risking his life and traveling hundreds of miles round trip, Abraham returns from his rescue operation victorious. He retrieved all the people and the plunder that was taken in King Chedorlaomer's vicious conquest. But when all is said and done, Abraham doesn't even get a lousy t-shirt, not a sandal strap or as much as a thread. In fact, he comes home with 10% less wealth than he had when he began. No matter, Abraham is not concerned or worried about it. What he does get is an incredible interaction with a mysterious spiritual figure, and he comes home with a stronger testimony than ever. So we begin in verse 17 of chapter 14. After Abram returned from defeating Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Sheva Valley, that is, the King's Valley. This aftermath that we're reading tonight is notable for what Abraham did not do. We'll see in the end, he does not keep any of the plunder, though he could have. We also note here that after all was said and done, he came back home. Uh, And it's important that we recognize that he did not decide he was the the king of Elam now or the king of any of these other places that he had defeated. If you stayed around for the stinger in the final episode of The Mandalorian Season 2, if not, spoiler alert, it's been a year, that's on you. But if you stayed around, you saw the famous Boba Fett. He had finally clawed himself out of obscurity, fought his way into power, was victorious, and then there in that stinger, he sat himself on the throne of Jabba the Hutt, from which he will now rule coming soon to Disney+, Plus, right? And so we see that, and we see, oh yeah, he made it, and now it's his turn to be in charge of things. Uh, Abraham didn't do that. He went back to his life as a herdsman. Our culture likes to talk about leverage. There's lots of blog posts about it, and YouTube videos about it, and books about it how to keep getting more for yourself, a greater position, greater wealth, greater influence. That stands in stark contrast to the life goals given by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, where he tells us more than once, seek to lead a quiet life. And he says, mind your own business, uh, to lead a quiet life and not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. The meeting place that day was called the King's Valley. 
Now, we're not certain where exactly this was and if it was named for, you know, the king of Sodom or rather whether it was his purview. But the way that it's presented to us in the story, the king comes out to the king's valley and they have this meeting there. We can't help but connect it there with King Bera of Sodom. And we have this image of the king in the king's valley. And we have to ask ourselves, is that really your valley? It wasn't, on, not on a variety of level, levels. Number one, we know that that land had been given by God to Abraham's descendants forever. But even, even though king, the king of Sodom wouldn't recognize that, there he stands in the king's valley, and yet he had not been able to defend it. He was not able to defend his people. He could not secure the borders of his own kingdom when this other fighting force came in. And we'll find that one of the sub-themes of this passage is that all the world belongs to the Lord. He's the one in charge. It did then and it does now. The world belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness therein. Verse 18 says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. Now, read plainly, it seems that the meeting of Abraham, Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom happened simultaneously at the same time altogether. As we read, from time to time, drop into your mind the idea of King Bera watching all of this unfold. Uh, And it's an interesting perspective to see these two guys who worship the God of heaven, and he's sitting there waiting for his turn to do his weird king of Sodom thing. Uh, But he's watching this all unfold. So who was Melchizedek? For thousands of years, there have been many different opinions. His name shows up again in one of the Psalms of David, Psalm 110. And of course, there is a lengthy reference and discussion of this incident in the book of Hebrews. He also appears in many extra-biblical writings, including some found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, And I'm not saying that, you know, those scrolls are authoritative, uh, just that they exist. From these sources have come a wide range of theories about who we should consider Melchizedek to be. Some say he was actually Noah's son, Shem. Some say he was Noah's nephew who had been miraculously born and then taken to heaven by Michael the archangel to survive the flood and then returned to the earth for some reason. Others say he's a warrior angel, not a human at all, or that he's a member of the divine council. Some say he was Michael the archangel. Some say he was Christ himself. Believe it or not, in early church history, there was a heretical sect called the Melchizedekians, and they taught that Melchizedek was greater than Christ and that Christ had been made in his image. One theory is that he was the Holy Spirit. There's all kinds of crazy ideas. There's really no reason to believe that he was anything other than what he plainly appears to be. And what he plainly appears to be, what we're told about him, what little we're told about him. And if you study the passage in Hebrews, you find that we're told little about him on purpose by the Holy Spirit. But with what little we see here, we have no reason to think he's anything other than the king of a city who was also a priest to God Most High. That's what we're told. It's plain. Uh, and that is, is a good reason to, to interpret him this way. As the book of Hebrews shows us, his life story does become a profound type of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ's non-Aaronic priesthood. And that's important when you get to the book of Hebrews to study through that and all the significance there. But beyond 
the fact that his life serves as a type for us, like Abraham's son Isaac serves as a type when he is almost offered on Mount Moriah, right? We talk about these types in the Old Testament which foreshadow the work of Christ. But beyond Melchizedek's life serving as a type, there's no evidence to identify him with Shem or with an angel or with Christ himself in what we would call a theophany, a pre-incarnate visit of Christ to the earth. In fact, there's only biblical evidence disproving those theories. For example, Hebrews says specifically, we're not told and we don't know who Melchizedek's father and mother are. So that cancels out him being Shem or being Noah's nephew. We're told in the book of Hebrews he was a man. Therefore, it cancels out the idea that he was an angel or a member of the divine council. So I don't think we need to get outlandish about it. So where was he king? We're told he was the king of Salem, which most scholars agree would later become recalled Jerusalem, right? Salem is in, Salem is in there, Jerusalem. So we see him as the king of Jerusalem at the time. Bread and wine here is better understood to be a full banquet that he was providing for these warriors come home. And so as A.W. Pink beautifully points out, we have a, an incredible foreshadowing here of what our Lord will accomplish at his return to earth. There, after vanquishing the coalition of worldly kings, the king of righteousness will feast with his people, those who have been about his business, and with the Jewish remnant saved through that terrible tribulation represented by Lot in this story, that tribulation that nearly sweeps them away, but they are restored back to safety. Meanwhile, there are some great devotional thoughts for us. The mention of bread and wine, of course, reminds us of communion, the Lord's Supper, which is given to us by our King to commemorate and celebrate the victory won for us and shared with us. And so a great foreshadowing there. Now, Melchizedek also demonstrates that God is always working in all sorts of ways, whether we know it or not. It is a strange thing as we read through these chapters in Genesis that suddenly somebody outside the story that we've been reading comes in who has a relationship with the living God, who says, yeah, I know God. Yeah, I minister to God. Yeah, I, I have my own thing going with God. Not that he had a different faith, but we think, wait, where did this guy come from? Who are you? I thought there was only Abraham. And what is this a testimony of? It's a testimony of his God is always working in all sorts of ways. Abraham perhaps felt like the only believer in all the world because he almost was. But it wasn't true that he was the only believer. We see another one here. Even in the heart of the land of Canaan, that bastion of evil and wickedness and darkness, there was a man who was not simply a good man, not simply a, a moral person. He was a true worshiper of Abraham's God, of Jehovah. Some try to suggest that Melchizedek didn't know who he was worshiping, that in a sense he was worshiping God on accident, that he was a monotheist, but he didn't really know anything about it. But that's simply not true. Abraham clearly accepts and uses language in this passage that shows that, yeah, this guy and me, we worship the same God. And the book of Hebrews only presents Melchizedek as being genuine, and being correct in his relationship to God and his priesthood toward God. And so how did he know about Jehovah? Who was he ministering to? What other spiritual adventures did he have? We don't know. 
but undoubtedly he had them. He had a story like Abraham has a story, and Noah had a story, and you and I have a story. This is a book about God not only creating the heavens and the earth, but particularly it is about God's unfolding work of redemption through one specific family, the family of Abraham, right? But this other stuff that we see, little glimpses of what God was doing in the meantime, meanwhile, back at the ranch, right? He, he was doing these other things because God wasn't like, oh, I only have enough energy and focus to, to work with one guy. You know, the Lord says, if you seek me, you will find me. And the Lord wants to be found. He wants to be in relationship with people. He wants to reveal himself to the people of the world. He's not hiding away from the people of the world. That's his heart today. That was his heart thousands of years ago. And so he was doing work in other places simply that wasn't recorded here for us. Now, believers often fall victim to a we're the only ones mentality. It's a tendency that, that some people have more than others, but it is a tendency that believers have. Not just us today in, you know, in our world, but you know, we remember Elijah, this happened to him. I'm the only one. I'm the only servant of God. Oh God, what are you going to do if I'm killed? And the Lord says, first of all, I've got 7,000 other people. Why don't you cool it? And, and, we're not even t- and that's just in the, the northern kingdom of Israel. So just dial it back a little bit, Elijah. Also, you're going to retire. So let's just, let's just get this done. But you know, this happens to whole denominations in the church from time to time, where through a variety of, of, of you know, traditions or through the course of just sort of becoming cold-hearted towards the world you know, or towards others, and we, the whole denomination sometimes slip into this, well, we're the only saved people. We're the only ones. No one else, if you don't believe exactly what we believe about all these non-essential things, then you're not a Christian, and so heaven's going to be pretty, pretty empty. We're all going to be shouting, hey, and you know, like a million miles away, there's the next neighbor Christian. Uh, And so we want to be careful about that. God is at work all around the world every moment of every day. And even though Abraham and Melchizedek were strangers, we see this great moment that they were also, also instantly connected because of their love of God. They had instant communion and fellowship and camaraderie together. And so what a great example these two guys are of Christian family relationship, sort of Christian brotherhood, the brotherhood of the saints, uh, that, you know, Philadelphian love where we just say, hey, you're, you, believe, you love Jesus, I love Jesus. Hey, we are connected in, in the church universal And yes, there's going to be things that perhaps we disagree on that are non-essential, but we don't need to divide over every single tiny thing. Instead, we can join together in the bonds of fellowship. Verse 19 says, he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham. And he said, Abraham is blessed by God, most high creator of heaven and earth. So we don't know much about Melchizedek. But we do get a glimpse into his theology here, and we find that it lines up with what God has said so far in Genesis. You know, he says, yeah, God was the creator. There's one God. He's God most high. It all is consistent with what God has already said to us through the Holy Spirit in this book. God's revelation is consistent in all times and in all places. 
So what does this mean for you know, day-to-day life? What it means is this. When a person, for example, like Joseph Smith, comes along and says, hey, I have a new revelation, and it, is, it stands in stark contradiction to what everyone has heard before, but go ahead and just take my word for it. When that happens, it's not from God. It just isn't. In fact, the Apostle Paul said it didn't matter what person told you that. It didn't matter if it was an apostle himself. It didn't matter if an angel from heaven tells you another gospel. If it is not a gospel that has been previously revealed through the scripture, he says, let that person be accursed. It's a lie. You don't believe it. You don't have to give it the time of day. There is one revelation from God, and it remains consistent forever. Melchizedek affirms that there is one God, that he is the creator God, that he created this universe. On top of that, the message of Melchizedek to Abraham, toward Abraham, is in line with what God had already said to Abraham as well. He didn't say, thus saith the Lord, and give some contradictory prophecy or statement or or say, I've heard from the Lord that you're going to own the land of Egypt, right? He didn't give him something that was contradictory to what God had told him. And so like Abraham, we have been blessed by God. Believers receive an everlasting blessing. I mean, we receive all kinds of blessings, but specifically, we know that we receive an everlasting blessing, everlasting life in Jesus Christ. And we're told in in the book of the Revelation that because of this blessing, the second death has no power over us. And as a result, we have now been called into God's priesthood. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 20. A major part of biblical priesthood is to do what Melchizedek does here, and that is he blessed somebody. He's blessing people. And that's a job that God has given us to do. The Bible says that if you're a Christian, you are now a member of God's royal priesthood. And part of biblical priesthood is to go and bless people. We bless others in the family of faith in a lot of ways through encouragement and support and assistance and kindly affection. But also, very specifically, we are supposed to bless our enemies. Jesus talked about this multiple times. Peter and Paul also talk about it. All of those people, you know, Jesus as our king, Peter and Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all command us to bless those who persecute us. Not easy, not necessarily fun, but it's something that we have been commanded to do as priests of the Most High God. Now, here's, there's an important shade to all of this. Melchizedek was a priest to the Most High God, But Abraham did not have to go through him in order to have a relationship with God, right? Abraham already had a relationship with God. That didn't mean he didn't, it didn't mean he like put his hand in the face of Melchizedek and said, get away from me. I don't need to hear about your priesthood. I mean, they have this wonderful interaction together in this time where they're this, uh, effectively, it's like what we would, some, something like what we would call a church service almost, right? Where they're having this, this time together and this, this, you know, godly oriented conversation together. But Abraham did not have to go through this priest in order to have a relationship with God. And the reason is because the Lord already had a relationship with him. Now, of course, through the 
time of the Mosaic law, God would establish a priesthood for a lot of different reasons. But now all of that is finished and fulfilled. The veil has been torn. And now for us as Christians in what we call the dispensation of grace or the New Testament era, for the same reason that you don't bring rams and bulls and lambs to church, you also do not go through a priest in order to have a relationship with God. You don't. Not a priest, not a pastor, not a program. You have unrestricted access to the throne room of God because there is now one mediator between God and mankind, and that is the man Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says. And so the idea that any believer or any person who wants to you know, become a Christian, the idea that they have to go through a priest or go through a pastor in order to gain access to God is not biblical. It's just not. Now, at the same time, we function as priests, not saying that, well, I stand between God and people and that if they don't come through me, they can't know God, but that we represent God to people and we bring people to God and we bless them and we help explain things to them and we do all of these different functions that we see priests doing in the Bible, but people don't come through you to access God. You can show them the way. You can preach the gospel to them. You can explain to them the truth that has been revealed in the scripture. But you don't have to go to a priest to have your sins forgiven. You don't have to go to a priest to receive the truth of God. You don't have to go to a pastor to get access to God. He has thrown his home and his temple wide open to anyone who will come in and sup with him. I think we're all on board with that. Verse 20. And blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Though Melchizedek had not been involved in this fight, he knew all about the battle Abraham had fought. God is mindful of all your struggles and all of your difficulties. He has not forgotten them. He has not forgotten you. So we kind of look at this and we say, how does he know about any of this? He wasn't involved, and we don't know. We don't know if he had a word of knowledge, or, if, or we don't know how the mechanics of this worked. But what do we see? We see this representative of God who is a, a type of the kind of priesthood that Jesus Christ has for us. He already knew about what the Lord was doing in that life and all that was going on and all that had been accomplished. And we're going to see he spoke prophetically as well what was still yet to come. And so God has not forgotten you. He knows about your difficulties. He is mindful of your struggles. We can trust him in those things. Now here, famously, Abraham gives a tenth or a tithe. That's where that word comes from, a tenth. A tithe of everything to God through Melchizedek. So first off, what did he give? From what pile did he give? Some say it was 10% of the battle plunder. Some say it was 10% of his own goods and none of the plunder. Others say it was 10% of his own stuff and the spoils of war. What would we do if people just agreed on things? I don't know, but we can't be sure. But given Abraham's attitude in this section, I think we're safe to, to say that, well, I find it hard to believe that he was only giving to God what he had just gained a few days or a day before. Don't get me wrong. He was entitled to those spoils of war. Absolutely. But I'm sure his mentality at the time was like that of King David so many centuries later who said, I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. 
right? So we're not sure exactly. I tend to think, because it says there, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. I, I tend to think he gave him a tenth of his own goods and a tenth of the battle goods as well, which would have been super fun with the king of Sodom standing right there. But So what about tithing? It's something, is it something that every Christian must do to be a good Christian? Is it something that we should all strive for? Some folks point to this passage and say that since this predates the Mosaic law, therefore the tithe should apply to believers of every age. Others point to the law itself and say that Christians in the dispensation of grace are obligated to continue the tithe like the Israelites were. By the way, if you base your view on the tithe from the Mosaic law, you do have a little bit of a problem, like every time you do if you base, base Christian behavior on the law. But here's specifically for this, because when you add everything up, there were certain tithes you gave all the time, certain tithes you gave every three years. You had those years of jubilee and everything. And people smarter than me have added things up. And, and actually, the Israelites ended up giving about 23% of their income, not 10%. So the next time somebody says, the law says you, you have to give 10%, therefore you, all Christians have to give 10, you know, a tithe, you say, oh, so you give 23% of your income? Maybe they do. But before setting a number, and dealing with this issue, the more important question to ask, or, or the more basic question to ask is, does God care about our, what we do with our finances, and does he want us to give charitably of our money and our goods and our possessions? Now, when we ask that more basic question, the answer to that is a very clear yes. Yes, he does. In fact, Jesus grouped giving financially, he grouped those in with prayer and fasting in his Sermon on the Mount. And he also said that by giving of our earthly wealth, we are able to store up treasures in heaven. Said a lot of things about giving. In the New Testament, when the, the Lord or the apostles talked about giving and what that means, it is connected with and categorized with three things, really. Helping the needy and the less fortunate supporting ministers of the gospel and the work of the church. We see that in the book of Acts. Now, so then the question is, okay, the Lord clearly wants me to be generous towards those in need and towards his work. And so if that's true, then what's the number? How much should you give? Do I have to tithe? Should every Christian be doing the same thing? What's the standard? And this is the great answer for that. That's none of my business. It's none of my business. It's just not. And what the person sitting next to you gives, unless it's your spouse, which I guess most of you did, what the person sitting two rows in front of you gives is also none of your business. It just isn't. This is something that you need to be led by God in how to give. Not just the numeric amount, but also in, in where to give. Uh, we live in such an incredible time, unlike any other time in church history, where from the comfort of our own homes, we can pay to dig a well in India, feed a child in Haiti, send a Bible to a soldier overseas, provide relief for tornado victims in Kentucky, and we could do all that in the same day if we want to. And we can do it by just, just doing this, right? Just clicking buttons. I mean, we can give jackets to the cold people in our town. We can send money to the Crossroads Pregnancy Center here in town, which they 
pool together so that they can do things like teach people how to be godly parents and minister to women after an abortion or provide pregnancy tests free of charge and all sorts of different things. You can give to this church, which helps us do things like pay staff and keep the lights on and have events and buy Bibles and make podcasts and provide a place where the gospel is preached week by week and year by year, right? There are too many opportunities for you to give, right? There are too many good, genuine opportunities that if you gave 100% of everything you made, there would still be a myriad of opportunities of good work that is happening in the name of Jesus that you would never get to, right? So because of that, that means all the more you need to be led by God, the Holy Spirit, as to how you're going to give. You need to determine if you're one of the people who has the gift of giving. You read that in the New Testament, talking about spiritual gifts. Some people were told have the gift of giving. That doesn't mean that the rest of us don't have to give or if you, you know, that only those people give. Everyone is meant, we see every Christian is meant to be charitable and generous. But you have to figure out, do I have the gift of giving? If the Holy Spirit has given you the spiritual gift of giving, that's going to change the calculus about your giving life, right? In the same way that I'm sure most of the people in the room here, you know people who have a true gift of evangelism. I'll be honest, most of the time, if I share the gospel with somebody, I, I, I have to conclude that it's just like the Charlie Brown parents. They're like, uh-huh. And then I'm with some of the other people you know, at our church sometimes, and they're like, hey, bro, you want to know about Jesus? I want to get saved. And they're like crying, and I'm like, where was this guy five seconds ago? You know? And it's because they have the gift of evangelism. And I don't particularly, it doesn't seem like I particularly have that gift. That's okay. doesn't mean I'm not supposed to evangelize or share the gospel with people. But obviously, that's going to change the way that you operate based upon what your gifts are. And so you need to figure out how the Lord wants you to give. That's between you and your God. And as you seek that out, there are some great principles given to us, guiding principles in the Bible to get started in your uh, seeking this out. Our giving is to be motivated by love and not begrudgingly. You're not to be pressured to give. Hey, we're talking about this because it's in the text. But we try really hard at Calvary Hanford for as long as we've been to church to not be the kind of church that pressures people to give. That is a really important goal for us because I'm guessing a lot of you have been exposed to a church that is hammering you about giving and you need to give this much and hey, another giving opportunity and now you do this and now you do that and just if you could give a little bit more and now if you can promise to give every week and if you can do all these things, we're not gonna do that. We're never gonna do that. When it comes up in the text, because this is our study through the Bible, we're going to talk about some of these biblical principles. So by no means should anyone feel pressured like you can't leave here without giving. We're not going to take an offering tonight. We're not doing anything like that. We're just talking about what we're seeing here. So our giving is to be motivated by love, not begrudgingly, not because you were pressured by man. And because of that, we would say that our goal should not be how little can I get away with, but how much will the Lord allow me to give to his work? Next, we're told that our giving should be private, it should be regular, it should be sacrificial, and it should be cheerfully done. You can study these things more in detail and more specifically in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 6. Verse 21 continues our story. Then the king of Sodom, Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. So 
the meeting is broken up here, it seems, by the impatience of Bera, the king of Sodom. If you holy rollers are done with your little, you know, your, whatever you're doing over here, let's get down to business. I got my stuff that I want to have, and you know, I want my people and that kind of thing. There's no thank you. There's no acknowledgment of the greatness of Abraham's God. There's no humility at all. Instead, though he was a yellow-bellied, vanquished, you know, uh, defeated despot, he tries to command Abraham in what to do, setting the terms and suggesting that he's the one that owns everything. It's not true, though. Now, this is what we should expect from the kings of this world. Man, what arrogance and hard-heartedness is on display here. Bera here, the king of Sodom, had, after all, abandoned these people to enslavement and death. What are we seeing? He started the fight, remember? They rebelled against Chedorlaomer. They said, we don't want to pay this guy tribute anymore. We're going to fight against him. Chedorlaomer came down and wiped them out. And what do we see? We see that when the going got tough, King Bera retreated back to his palace. All his people were taken away, and he only came out once someone else had done his job for him. And we see the sinful heart of man on full display here, just complete defiance in the face of God's mercy. Look at what God had done for this man and for his people. And he says, give me, I'm deciding what's happening right here. Really sad. It's true that customarily the goods would rightfully belong to Abraham in a situation like this. But I do wonder if it wasn't also a devilish plot in the king's mind He needed to reestablish dominance, no doubt. If Abraham had kept the stuff, how long really would it have been before Bera started whispering to his people, Abraham stole all our stuff, let's go get it back. He could use it as a pretense to attack this incredibly wealthy nomad who had, from one vantage point, almost no defenses. So we're not sure what his motivation is, but it's interesting to think about. Verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high creator of heaven and earth that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you so you can never say I made Abram rich. It's often said that this scene is a great temptation for Abraham, a test of his faith. And for sure, there is a devotional application for us about not being bought off by the goods of this world and and the danger of greed and materialism and all of that, sure. But if this was a temptation, it really wasn't a very good one. Uh, For one thing, Abraham was already fabulously wealthy. And from his response here, it's clear he wasn't in the slightest bit interested in this offer. In the way that we see, Lot is always very interested in this worldly wealth and those sorts of things. He recoils, and he does so pretty tactlessly, if you ask me, from Bera's offer. Imagine you invited someone to dinner, and they said, I wouldn't take a used napkin or a grain of salt from you. Whoa, okay, okay. (laughs) You know, no love lost here. And so Abraham is obviously not interested, not tempted, not entertaining this idea. At the same time, Think of the great compassion that Abraham had shown to Bera. Abraham risked his life not just to save Lot, but to save this guy's people and bring his goods back. I mean, he's going to incredible effort, not just to save his own family, not even just to save people because they're made in the image of God. He says, hey, I'll haul all of Bera's stuff back for him for hundreds of miles, and I'll just give it back to him. Godly compassion doesn't mean that we celebrate or accept or, or, or 
feel fine about wickedness. It's clear that Abraham doesn't want to have anything to do with this guy. And it's not because he doesn't want to have to do anything with anybody. We see that he has an alliance with the Amorites, right? Those three Amorite brothers, and he's going to reference them in a minute. But he looks at King Barrett and he says, I know what kind of man you are. I know what kind of wickedness you saturate your life in. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And so at the same time, he's repulsed by the sinfulness of Barah, but also showing him incredible compassion. And so this is a great balance for us as Christians. We, as compassionate people, do not need to celebrate or accept wickedness. Today, some people say that being tolerant means we must affirm and respect and sign off on anything anyone does. And if you don't, you're intolerant. That's not what tolerance is, and it's not what we're called to as Christians. We're still supposed to recoil from wickedness while also living out sacrificial compassion even towards sinful, undeserving people. The interaction here is a great example to us of that. Now, Abraham did not want his testimony tarnished by the world. He said, I want people to know it's God who's working through my life, and I won't allow anything in that would tamper with that witness, not a thread, not a sandal strap. Verse 24, I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten, but as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, they can have their share. The Bible does not teach that personal property is a bad thing or that it doesn't exist. Abraham recognizes personal property and rightful reward. So did Peter, by the way, when it came to the situation of Ananias and Sapphira. He said, when you had that money, that's yours to do with what you want. The problem is not that you kept the money. The problem is that you lied to the Holy Spirit. The Bible is full of theological principles about your ox and your neighbor's ox, your boundary marker and your neighbor's boundary markers, the shirt on your back and your two shirts, right? That's from the New Testament. And so our hearts are to be fueled by compassion and generosity, but one cannot be generous if he has nothing of his own. And we notice here that Abraham had a conviction about this particular pile of material wealth but he did not force his allies to obey his personal conviction about it. He says, listen, these other guys have a rightful claim to be rewarded for their efforts. I'm not forcing on them my conviction that I don't want any of this stuff. So we see that Abraham felt a duty toward God when it came to this financial opportunity, and that at that moment, his duty was to sacrifice all of it, to give all of it back, and then some, an extra 10% for his trouble. But it was his duty, and everyone else had to decide on their own, and that's true for you and me as well. Serving God is meant to cost us something. No, there's no Christian life that costs nothing. Right now, the price has been paid by Jesus Christ to win our salvation, but to follow Christ costs something. Jesus has always been upfront about that, not just to his disciples, but to us as well. And so it's meant to cost you something. Through this saga, we've seen Abraham, the cost that he paid. He gave of his love, his strength, his effort, his time, his money, his patience. He gave in worship. He gave in humility. And he navigated all of this by being led by the Holy Spirit. And that's our calling, too, as believers. Abraham said he had made an oath to the Lord, and he was going to follow through on it. And we of Christians have sworn ourselves in solemn devotion to follow God and to serve him and to be about his business as his priestly representatives to this world. 
We get much more than a lousy t-shirt out of the deal. And so there's no need for us to be tight-fisted or greedy on this side of heaven. Instead, we should walk in the blessing of God, living as a blessing to others, ready to give and receive as the Lord leads us on.